You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Hey, uh, well, as they said, my name's Eric Barton, and I get to pastor the downtown campus, and I'm so glad that you're here. We say this frequently because we mean this. We don't think you're here by accident. However you think you got to be here, we believe that our sovereign God, by grace, from the dawn of time, knew that you would be in this place this morning for this purpose among these people. And that purpose is to come together in God's spirit, study God's word, as God connects with every human heart in the present tense. So that's what we're here to do. Uh, I wanna invite you, if you've got your Bibles to that end, to open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. We began our series, our study, through the Gospel of John last week and this morning. We're gonna continue that through with a very involving passage. Uh, But it brings to mind something about fame. I think everybody, pretty much, knows somebody that knows somebody famous. You know what I mean? Everybody knows somebody that knows somebody famous. Like, you know, ooh, my veterinarian did an emergency C-section on Earl Campbell's turtle. Okay, okay, so you don't actually know Earl Campbell. No, but my veterinarian operated on his turtle. Okay, that's awesome. Or how about this? Uh, My big brother vomited on B.J. Thomas. Okay, so by the way, that one's actually true. My brother puked on B.J. Thomas. Great story. That was my brother's one claim to fame. We all know somebody who knows somebody famous. But here's the deal. I don't know too many people who are they themselves very well known by somebody famous. Like I suspect if I was somehow able to get, I don't know, uh, George W. Bush's phone and I could get past all the emojis that that guy certainly uses, if I got into his favorite screen, I don't know that I'm going to see like any of your names there in like his top ten. Like, I, I, I don't know anybody that is known that well by him. I don't know anybody that is so well known by uh-huh, Troy Aikman that you two share an inside joke about how silly you look when you're eating soup. And that Troy Aikman can tease you that when you eat soup, your little lip does that little weird thing there, you know. Nobody's known that well, but, but wouldn't it be something if you were? What if you're actually known by someone who was that well known? I've always thought, what would it have been like if I was really, really known by Billy Graham. And when Billy Graham saw me coming, he just, he knew me. He knew all about me, my background. He knew the struggles that I had. He knew the relationships that I was in. And Billy Graham just knew me. Wouldn't that be amazing? What about, what about Charles Spurgeon? What if that fiery, little, rotund, bearded guy, wait a minute, that sounds like me. Anyway, that Spurgeon knew me. Like when you saw Spurgeon and he would just get right up in your kitchen and just tell you what's going on because he knows you and he loves you. Well, I believe that biblically, that is the need of every single human heart. We are all desperate to be known by somebody that matters. We're all desperate to have somebody who we esteem as greater than us know us, accept us in spite of all of the reasons and the evidence not to. That is an identity forger. This morning, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John, and we're going to have this great uh, series of vignettes of what does it look like to be genuinely known, not by B.J. Thomas 
or Troy Aikman or Charles Spurgeon, but by the famous one. What does it look like when God himself deeply, penetratingly knows you and loves you despite all of the things that he does know? Well, this morning our big idea for this lengthy passage of scripture that we're going to study is simply this. Know that you are known. It is possible to come together as the church in God's spirit among God's people as we study God's word and to know that you are known. I will contend that is one of the primary things that our world needs most is people who know that they are known. They are accepted. They have everything they need and who have no need of striving and grasping and trying to accomplish or achieve anything else to build their identity. So we're going to read in the Gospel of John. I'm going to begin reading in John 1 and in verse 19. Now, there are a few different little sections. Uh, for these first few sections, I'm going to read the whole section, and then we'll walk back and try to uh, unpack some of it briefly and try to apply it as best we can. Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. The disciple John writes, and this is the testimony of John. That's John the baptizer. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed, and he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, and why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. That is a frequent, persistent theme all the way through John's gospel. Do you know him? Are you known by him? Verse 27, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. This is God's word. And this is God's word that is written by the apostle, the disciple, the revelator, John. John is probably in his 80s, sitting in Ephesus in the mid-80s AD. This is Ephesus, the church that Paul planted, stays there for three years. This is the church where Timothy is the pastor now, where John is still pastor emeritus. He's going to end up having to leave Ephesus, go into exile on Patmos, and then come back. They will carry him in over the age of 100, still preaching. This is the place we think where Mary, mother of Jesus, was brought. Last week, we began to study through the first 18 verses of John's gospel. We call it the prologue. And when it's widely held, and I agree, that John writes his gospel, and then he goes back at the end and he adds the first 18 verses. Sort of a prologue, a foreword. And John's purpose is to write everything that happened, and then to write these 18 verses on the front end so that he detonates a nuclear bomb of claim, and then that truth reverberates and radiates through the remainder of his gospel. So what we're going to read today has to be in view of and in light of John's bold, astonishing claim that Jesus is the Logos. He is the one who is the creator. He is Dabar Yahweh, the word of God. He is the cosmic mover in the universe. And it's a person. And we've known him. 
Now with all of that, John continues to build his story because the gospel of John, as has been said, is pure, pure propaganda. It is John trying to convince his readers so that you will believe. To really understand the gospel of John, yes, you have to read the prologue, but you also have to read the end of his story in chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31. John gives us the thesis and the theme of the whole book. John writes this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are the ones that are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name, life everlasting. And so John's gonna now write net of that story of who Jesus is, he is the Christ. He's now going to give us four days of demonstration. So on this first day, Verse 19, this is the testimony of John the Baptist. This is a very, very John word. He uses this word testimony, marturion, more than anybody else in the New Testament. This is the witness because John is trying to convince us of something. This is the witness on the stand. This is the proof. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem the Jewish leaders, this is the first foreshadowing that we're going to have tension. This is the first foreshadowing that we're going to have conflict. The Jews here means the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the leaders who are in Jerusalem. They're beginning to be concerned enough about John the Baptist that they send a delegation out east from Jerusalem across the Jordan River into the wilderness. Because John has been ministering, we think, for about a year at this point. John's been at it for a year. And he has begun to assemble a whole lot of people to him. Been doing this for a year. He has been calling Israel to repentance. Why? Because John, this is super important to understand, John is the last great Old Testament prophet. John is of the ilk of Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah. John the Baptist is of the class of Hosea, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all of those guys. He is an Old Testament prophet that God speaks directly to and then he goes and speaks to the nation and calls that nation to repentance. For a year now, John the Baptist has been calling people to himself and he's baptizing people with water as a symbol of the one that will come after him. And these Jewish leaders begin to feel threatened. This is a little bit of a dun-dun-dum because we know it's gonna to come to a full force by the time we get to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, and in verse 48. One of the final signs and wonders that Jesus does is he raises Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus was dead. I mean, he was dead dead. He actually had the, mm, that doesn't smell very good kind of dead. And he's walking around, and the Pharisees, these same group of Pharisees and Levites and priests come together and say, oh, you know what we gotta do? We gotta kill that guy. That guy meaning Lazarus. Because on account of him, people are going over to Jesus. And we can't let that happen. Which if you're Lazarus, you're thinking, man, that's really gonna stink, literally. I've been dead once. These guys wanna kill me again. Can I get a break here, please? The Jewish people say, we have to kill Lazarus because on him, people are believing in Jesus. And then the Romans will come and they will take our status and our control. Incidentally, the two great enemies of faith in their life and in yours and in mine 
is the illusion of status and control. So long as I think I can acquire, amass, obtain, construct status and control, I don't need faith. And so we're beginning to see even already the first fruits. Why are you doing this? Why have you been out here for over a year now baptizing people with water? You're not even doing it according to the temple custom. You're doing it out here across the Jordan River. So they ask him, who are you? Because they hear the murmurs of the people. They understand that this is beginning to create quite a stir. So in verse 20, he confessed and he did not deny but confessed. It's interesting that John, the disciple, uses this word twice. He confessed. He doesn't deny. He confessed. The word is homologeo. He speaks the same words. He speaks the same words as the one who sent him. John confessed. This is what God said. He doesn't deny. John says this is what God says. I am not the Christ. Apparently they had asked him, are you the Christ? John's response, I am not the Christ. And so they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? John says, John the Baptist says, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Listen to how his answers get shorter every time. I'm not the Christ. I am not. No. Why is John doing that? Because John's whole mission is to deflect and to redirect people's attention and focus to Jesus. He doesn't want to spend time talking about himself. What's interesting is he is the Elijah that is to have come. Both the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark, we have Jesus telling his hearers, Elijah has come if you're willing to accept it. Why does Jesus say that? Because in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament, before God goes silent for 400 years, in chapter 3, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 5, we are told, one in the spirit of Elijah will come, and he will bear witness about the coming of Messiah. He is Elijah. And yet they ask him, are you Elijah? And he says, no. What's going on? Why does he say no? Because Elijah, I'm sorry, John the Baptist understood their hearts and he understood their hopes. They were hoping that this was the actual return of actual Elijah. There was a myth that was going around that since Elijah didn't actually die, he was just taken up in a chariot of fire, which by the way, I think that probably hurt. I don't know for sure. But that since he didn't actually die, that perhaps he would actually physically, literally, he himself come back. And so they just want a hero they want a hero and John says I'm not your guy I'm not that that's not what I'm here for are you the one who is going to herald in the Messiah yes but I'm not your guy and then they ask him in verse 21 well then are you the prophet he answered no see these guys knew just enough scripture to be dangerous Way back in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, Moses says, there will come a prophet after me. He is greater than me. You must listen to him. He's the one. See, Moses was, of course, a prophet. Moses was also, obviously, a priest. He interceded to God on behalf of man. And Moses was also a king. He didn't have that title, but he, without question, ruled the people. Moses is prophet and priest and king. And yet he says, there will come one after me who is greater. Listen to him. And they have been waiting. And they have been waiting for 1,500 years for the one who will come who's greater than Moses. A better king, none of them were any good. A better prophet, they all had issues. A better priest, not going to happen. They all had issues. And so the Jews ask John the Baptist, are you the prophet? Now what's interesting is 
they reveal their ignorance. They should have known that the prophet and the Messiah are the same exact person. But believe it or not, there were some passages of Scripture they just didn't like and so they didn't study and they didn't read and they just dismissed them. They wanted Elijah 2.0 or they wanted Moses 2.0 just enough to nudge them on their way. Just enough to sort of change and improve their circumstance and that's good enough. And John says, no, we're not here for that. Verse 22. So they said to him, well then who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Give us something. I got to go back and make a report. John says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John jukes them. John quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Now, you got to kind of stick with me on this because this is really fascinating. John the Baptist quotes from Isaiah, who's writing some 700 years before the time of John the Baptist. And that passage that says, make straight the way of the Lord, has nothing to do with the Messiah. And yet John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and as an Old Testament prophet, he repurposes the passage, and it's right. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, the prophet Isaiah is telling Israel, you're going to rebel. You're a stiff-necked people. You're going to go in exile into Babylon. And Isaiah's hearers, 700 years ago, go, Babylon? Babylon? They're like the Cleveland Browns of the ancient world. They're nobody. We're not going to exile in Babylon. And then the Lord raises up Babylon and they become a great and mighty nation and they conquer Israel and take them off into exile. And Isaiah continues in chapter 40 and says, but the Lord your God is not going to leave you there. He's taking you there for a period of chastisement. The Lord your God will come and bring you out. So make ready the path. Make straight the highway. Find the low places, raise them up. Find the high places, smooth them down. Make straight the path. Be ready for your God to come and rescue you. And so John quotes that verse, and these guys go, whoa, it's even better than Elijah 2.0. It's even better than Moses 2.0. This guy is going to save us from Rome. We're occupied, we're oppressed, we're invaded by Rome. And John's going to say, actually, no. It's way bigger than that. Your real enemy is not Rome. In fact, Jesus will show us all through the Gospels and even into the book of Acts. He loves Romans. He loves Romans. You know what else is great news? He loves Philistines. He loves Ninevites. He loves Jebusites, Parasites. He even loves Texans. This is very good news. He's not here to overthrow empires. He's not here to make Israel great again. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. No, 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 no. He's here to overthrow a far greater evil in the world. Me. John will say, no, no, no. He's not here to free us from Rome. He is here to free us from all of our sin and depravity and darkness and death, if you will have it. They're not interested. Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. The Pharisees, there's about 6,000 of them in existence at this point. They are the defenders of the old ways. They are the preservers of Hebrew culture against the Greek invasion. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, why are you doing this stuff out here? John answered them, I baptize with water. This is just in preparation to call Israel to repentance. But among you stands one you do not know. 
And there's the indictment. You don't know him. You claim to know God, but you don't know God. In fact, you actually have no use for God. Verse 27, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. What is John the Baptist saying there? This is not just an idiomatic expression. This is a direct declaration of the divinity of Jesus. When he says, I'm not fit to unstrap his sandal, he is calling him God. Let me explain. We kind of lose it in our time and culture. 2,000 years ago, if you are a, a, a family man or you're a business owner, you're a farmer, and something happens where a drought comes and you lose your crops or you lose your business or you can't afford to make payments on your home or whatever, you have to, by law, sell yourself into indentured servitude. And by law, you can work for someone else as their slave. They are your master for a maximum of seven years. After seven years, they have to let you go. But while you serve them for that seven years, your master can tell you to do anything. He can order you to do anything, and you have to do it. You and, by the way, your entire household until you pay off whatever debt, no more than seven years. But there's one thing that a master cannot demand the servant do. The master cannot demand that the indentured servant remove the master's sandals and wash his feet because that would be demeaning it would be defiling and it would make the servant ceremonially unclean. And even the law said, we understand that no master is worth that. No master is worth more than the law of God. No, law, no master is worth more than God. So no master can make you untie his sandals and wash his feet. John says, man, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. They would have known precisely what he meant. The one that is coming is himself God. That makes them uncomfortable. Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. There are actually two Bethanies in the New Testament. One is just to the east of Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives. This Bethany, we have no idea. It's lost to history, so don't, don't get confused there. Now, the next day, verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. Why? That he might be revealed to Israel. It's preparatory. Verse 32, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, John the Baptist tells us for the second time. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, that is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The disciple John is making a legal case. This is an Old Testament prophet. This is the one who heralds in Messiah. One writer put it this way. If John the Baptist agrees that Jesus is the Messiah and nobody else in the world believes, Jesus still has all the credibility he needs. But if everybody else believes that Jesus is the Messiah and John the Baptist does not, Jesus has no credibility. Because John the Baptist is the link. He is the last and final Old Testament prophet that says, this is Messiah. And so now John the disciple is giving us the narrative of how things go down. The very next day, John the Baptist is standing around and Jesus happens by. Now we know that about six weeks earlier, John had baptized Jesus in water. And John protests and says, man, I can't baptize you. You're, 
You're Jesus. I, you're, I can't do it. And Jesus, no. So that all righteousness is fulfilled, you have to baptize me because I am human. John does. And a bunch of things that we'll talk about in a moment happen. And then immediately Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, led by the Spirit, tempted by the devil. Jesus comes out of the wilderness, probably looking a lot more slim than he used to, having not had anything to eat for 40 days. And he walks past John the Baptist, and John the Baptist proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you are a Jewish ear 2,000 years ago, you plank. Because you cannot believe what John the Baptist just said. It is so more massive and enormous than we can really understand in our day and age. But let me try to help. The Lamb of God speaks to all three primary aspects of the Old Testament to the Jewish ear. Three ways the Lamb of God was central to the Jewish understanding of God's involvement in their lives. Number one is Abraham and Isaac. You may be familiar with the story. Abraham is commanded to go up on a mountain and sacrifice his own son. His own son Isaac, by the way, is something like 36 years old. He's probably pretty swole. He can probably take the old man who's in his hundreds now. So some of the great act of faith is actually seen in Isaac going, okay, old guy, you sure you want to tie me up? Okay, and lets it happen. And Isaac says, Father, I see the wood. I see the fire. I see the knife. But where is the lamb? And Abraham tells him famously, God himself will provide a lamb for himself. Abraham goes to strike his son and God stops him and says, don't do it. Listen carefully. And there's a lamb, a ram stuck in the thicket. And so all Israel understands that God himself will supply a substitute that will have to innocently die for the sake of another. All Israel understands that motif and that idea. And then we have aspect number two, Moses, leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. Ten plagues, the tenth was the worst. And God tells them, find a pure, spotless lamb without blemish, and you put it to death. You kill it. Though it is innocent, you kill it. And you take its blood, and you get it all over you, and you put it on your doorpost, and you will be passed over from death because a spotless lamb of God has died in your place. And they understood that. Aspect number three in the prophet Isaiah, all we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have. And yet God has laid on him the sin, the iniquity, the trespass of all of us. And he was led silently like a lamb before its shearers. He is the lamb of God. And John says, it's him. It's not an idea. It's not a ritual. It's not an observation or a celebration. It's a person. It's actually him. We didn't think of it that way. He surprised us. It's a person. And not only does he, not only is he the Lamb of God, he takes away the sin of the world. In the Old Testament, the sacrifices would temporarily cover, they would temporarily atone, temporarily propitiate the sin of the people. But the sin of the people would always bubble right back up. John says he doesn't do that. He doesn't just cover it. He removes it. He takes it away. All of the venom, all of the malice, all of the guile, hatred, wickedness, meanness, and evil in the world, he takes it into himself and dies with it. Behold, it's him. It's a person, is what John says. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John says, actually... He was born five months after me, but he predates me by, mm, or mm, carry the one, eternity. Because there's never been a time when he did not exist. He is the pre-existing one. He is better and beyond me. I myself didn't know him. 
John's like, I didn't, I didn't fully understand and appreciate who he was. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. It's a legal term. John gives witness. This is what he saw. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Now that's a tip-off. When you're baptizing someone and the sky cracks open and a Holy Spirit-like dove thing comes and alights on the person, you should probably pay attention. Like I've baptized a lot of people and I always hold them until they bubble just in case like the sky opens and the Spirit descends. Never happened. I've waited. Never. It's just them bubbling and so I pull them back up and now this, that's a tip-off. John says, I baptized him and the sky opened and the Spirit descended like a dove and it remained on him. And then John says again, I didn't know it was him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is incredibly important. It doesn't sound so to us, but in the Old Testament and in virtually every ancient civilization, a fact is confirmed by two or three witnesses. You cannot confirm a fact with one sole witness. And so John the disciple is putting together a case because it's propaganda. He wants you to believe. He wants you to believe. And so he says, I call three witnesses here. John the Baptist. I also call the Holy Spirit of God. I also call God the Father. He who sent John the Baptist. A fact is confirmed by three witnesses. John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit, and God. Any questions? Now that's a bold claim, but this is what John the disciple is saying. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God is confirmed by three witnesses. And when I say Jesus is the Son of God, it is not the child of God. In Greek, when you say the Son of, you are saying of the same essence, the same material, the same stuff. Jesus is God. It's not just he is the offspring of God because he is not. He is the essence of God. He is the image of the invisible God. And John says, I have a threefold witness for that account. And this have I borne witness that this is the Son of God. Verse 35. The next day, on the third day, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. By the way, that's like the clearest, most compelling model of discipleship I've ever read. Like this is how you do. Hey, there's Jesus. Bye. And you don't try to build for yourself a fiefdom and a little circle of friends. No, no, that's Jesus. And when people want to say, I think I'll go follow Jesus and read his Bible and be with his people, you go, sweet, I'm going to go to somebody else now. You don't get your feelings hurt. You introduce and direct people to Jesus. Verse 37, they follow Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, ah, the first words of Jesus' earthly ministry. We have him speak as a child. We have him speak in the temple. But this is the first thing we hear him say when he's not being tempted in the wilderness as he begins his earthly ministry. What are you seeking? Literally, seeking What? What are you after? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. I love the fact that John has to explain this because he's in Ephesus, not a primarily predominantly Jewish hearer, hearership. So he has to explain that Rabbi means teacher, which means teacher, where are you staying? They answer his question with a question. What are you seeking? And their answer is a question that goes like this. Where do you dwell? Because that's what I want. What, I don't know about all the other stuff. I'm not looking for a, a spiff to my bank account, a nicer house, a, a this or that. 
You, what do you want? They say, where do you dwell? Where do you abide? Because we want that. He said to them, come and you will see. I love that promise. Come, and if you work hard enough, try hard enough, have strong enough faith, pray hard enough, do enough good deeds, attend enough Bible studies, begin to one day teach BSF, then you will see. No. Just come and you will see. What do you think the very next sentence is? So they came and saw. It's like the greatest little gospel presentation ever. Come and see. You will see. So they came and they saw. See, this is the faithfulness of God in a sentence and a half. Where he was staying and they stayed with him for that day for it was about the 10th hour. Ah, why does John waste the ink to tell us what time it was? Who cares? It's 2,000 years later. What does it matter? It matters enormously. We don't know who those two disciples of John the Baptist were. We're gonna be told here in a little bit that one of them is Andrew, the brother of Peter. We think that the second one was probably John the disciple himself. He never refers to himself in first person or directly. He will always refer to himself in the third person very demurely, very dismissively. But John's telling us something. This happened. I came and saw, and I saw it was 10. So if you follow the Hebrew custom, the 10th hour would be 4 p.m. If you follow the Roman custom where they start at midnight, it would have been 10 a.m. Either way, it doesn't matter. John is saying, my life restarted at that moment. When I saw that he knew me, when I knew who he was, my life began at 10 a.m. Now, I don't know exactly when that happened in my life. There's never been a time I didn't believe. But I can tell you that any time that I have lived not understanding that I am known was not life at all. And for John, his life reboots at that exact moment, so he gives us the time. Verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He has to explain to these people in Ephesus what Messiah, Mashiach, means, because they're a primarily Greek context. Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You're, you're Simon Johnson, aren't you? Not anymore. Not anymore. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, because the master has the right to rename that which is his. We'll talk more about Peter in the coming weeks, Lord willing. Verse 43, the next day, now we are on day number four, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. So Jesus is on the east side of the Jordan River, crosses back over apparently, and goes north into the area called the Galilee around the Sea of Galilee. He found Philip. I'm sorry, let me say that again. He found Philip. Jesus goes to the Galilee. He found Philip. Am I beating that dead horse yet? He found Philip. Let me be redundant. He found Philip. Let me be repetitive. He found Philip. Let me say the same thing again. He found Philip. This is interesting. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, a little small fishing village in the northeast part of the Sea of Galilee, which was only discovered archaeologically about 18 months ago. Pretty exciting stuff, actually. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. <laughs> Do you see this? Jesus found him. And so Philip says, I found him. And that's my story. Jesus found me. And then I found him. And that's my story. Jesus pursued, went and found Philip. Where would Philip have gone looking? He didn't know. Jesus found him. And then Philip says, I found him. 
I wonder if that's, wonder if that's your story. Philip says, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, listen, the son of Joseph. You know, the carpenter's kid back in the sticks, back to the west. Nathaniel, we don't know much about Nathaniel. There are those, and I'm among them, that think Nathaniel is probably another name for Bartholomew in the lists of the disciples. It might not be. We don't know for sure. Doesn't matter. You can read on that yourself. Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Longview? Or something like that. There, there's, there's sort of this like inner city rivalry thing happening here. We think Nathaniel's probably from Cana and that they had probably lost, you know, the Super Bowl the last three years and really hated Nazareth or vice versa, whatever. It's a little bit of an idiomatic expression, intra-city up in that part of the country. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said, well, let me explain it to you. Let me break it down and give you four spiritual laws. Nope. Philip says, come and see. Gee, I wonder where he had gotten that kind of idea before. Just come and see. Now this is one of my favorite, favorite passages and encounters with Jesus. I love this. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. It's a strange way to be greeted. Nathanael said to him, Whoa, how do you know me. Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now listen to Nathaniel's reaction. If I see somebody say, hey, before he called you, I saw you, I go, okay, that's pretty creepy. That's, you got like a tracker, you got my find my friends on my iPhone thing or whatever. Watch Nathaniel's reaction. It is disproportionate to what Jesus says. Before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Watch what Nathaniel does. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Whoa, that's a big turnaround. Philip told him, we have found him. It's Jesus, the son of Joseph. And all Jesus has to say is, I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel knows that he's known. You are not the son of Joseph. You are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Why does Nathaniel have that reaction? We lose a little bit in the language here. It's a little bit of a play on words. Under the fig tree is a, it's an expression in Judaism. It means to recreationally sit back, relax, and actively meditate. It's how you take your rest, is you're actively meditating, you're actively going through God's word contemplating the things of God. And so when Jesus says, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. What he's telling Nathaniel is, I saw you and I know that you were meditating and I know what you were meditating on. This is why he greets him and says, behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Is Jesus saying that he doesn't have any sin, that he's actually an honest Jew? Look, an honest Jew. An honest Jew. And then Nathaniel goes, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. Does that make, no, of course not. There's more going on there. Behold a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. It's a brilliant thing that Jesus does that only Nathaniel will understand. When I was in the second grade, I had a horribly guilty conscience. And when I say second grade, I mean even to this day, okay? But Miss Miller, I swear to you, Miss Miller, Gladys Miller, God rest her soul, she knew my every thought. She knew. No matter what I would do, she knew what I had done, why I had done it, what I was thinking about while I was doing it. Miss Miller was clairvoyant, or she just knew that I was an idiot. She knew everything. 
Jesus says this to Nathanael, and it is specifically and only for Nathanael, only he's going to get it. Behold, a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit. What's going on? Bear with me for just a moment. In the Old Testament, in Genesis 28, there is a man named Jacob. And Jacob's name means deceiver. He's a cheat. It means grasper, swindler, cheater, deceiver. And apparently Nathaniel had been meditating on God's word. How and why would God give blessing through a cheater, through a deceiver? And then, if you remember in Genesis 28, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. This is the thing that Nathaniel was contemplating, imagining. And then that Jacob has all sorts of experiences with God. And Jesus says, before Philip called you, I saw you. You're a true Israelite. You were contemplating deceit, but I call you a true Israelite. And Nathaniel says, nobody could know that except God himself. Nobody could know that. And he shouts out, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. For the first time ever, Nathaniel knows that he is truly, completely, fully known. And I wonder, have you ever actually had that sensation? Not that it's about a feeling, but that realization that you are completely, totally known. The Bible tells us all through both Testaments, he knows our thoughts. Our thoughts have spiritual mass and weight. He knows what we think and he loves us anyway. He saw Nathaniel, knew what he was contemplating, and he loved him. Before you even got called, I knew what you were thinking about. That is an incredibly gracious God, the kind of person that has that kind of power, who knows what I'm thinking from a distance and wants to know me anyway. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. Well, Jesus answered in verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And then here's the final tip-off that we know what Nathanael was thinking about when Jesus sees him. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He is pondering under the fig tree Jacob's ladder. How can God have linkage to man when man is so corrupt and deceitful? Jacob was a liar and a cheater, and yet he sees God descending on the ladder, angels ascending and descending, and Jesus says, oh, I know what you're thinking about. I am Jacob's ladder. I am the link between God and humanity. I am the one who brings heaven to earth. I am the one who brings earth to heaven. It's me, Nathaniel. Nathaniel knows that he is known and he is accepted and he is loved anyway. This is the disciple John trying to say, hey, listen, I've told you the enormity of who this Jesus is. He is God. And these are the witnesses who tell you this is what he is. This is what he has done. This is what he can do. So let me just bring three very quick points of implication to try to land this and apply it to our lives here today first one goes like this. Most people trust a Christian before they trust Christ. I know that it has happened. Somebody opened up their Bible all by themselves in a closet, read it, came to Christ, began a church, and you know, all that. Yeah, great. I know that that has happened. You saw the YouTube video. Somebody in Pakistan was saved directly by Jesus alone. Great. That's not the normative way this goes. Generally speaking, nobody trusts Christ until they trust a Christian. Look at all these people who get known by Jesus and their first reaction is to want to go and tell somebody else. 
Andrew says, it's the Lamb of God. I gotta tell my brother. Philip says, it's him. I gotta go get Nathaniel. And all throughout the rest of the Gospel of John, we're going to see people who encounter Christ, understand who he is, and they run off and tell somebody else. The woman at the well, come and see someone who knows me, who told me everything I have ever done. See, when you know that you are really known by the famous one, you can't help but talk about it. So hear me clearly. This is not a guilt fest of you need to go out and go knocking on doors, handing out pamphlets. None of these people do that. They go, I'm known. I'm known. Come and, come and see. Come and see. You and I cannot help but to talk about the thing we love most. What's so terribly tragic is that for many of us, it's shiplap. And how did they put all that shiplap on that wall so fast? That's amazing. Did you hear about that? Oh my gosh, OMG, emoji, emoji. Whoa, 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 whoa. It's convicting, no? You and I cannot help but to talk about the thing we cherish and value the most. So the question is, knowing that you are known, truly known and accepted and loved, who are those that you wish God would do for them what they have done for you? Because most people trust a Christian before they trust Christ. Secondly, examine your expectations of Jesus. I love that the first thing he says is, what do you want? What do you want? What do you really want with Jesus? To the extent that we want from Jesus what he came to offer, you will never, ever be disappointed or frustrated. If you want what he came to offer, you will never be frustrated or disappointed. But... If what you want from Jesus is to not die and go to hell one day, to have a life full of comfort, ease, prosperity, blessing, happiness, and comfort, then you're probably going to be disappointed. Because the New Testament tells us that the mark of a Christian is persecution and suffering. Yay! Best billboard for a church ever. Not so much. But if that's your expectation, that God doesn't exist, so don't worship him. That's a false religion. What are your real expectations of Jesus? He comes to offer himself in Christ. What is God like? He's like Jesus. Is that enough? What did those two disciples want? They just wanted to dwell with Jesus. And I can tell you, I go through days and I realize that's not my top priority. I just want to be left alone sometimes. But when I remember, oh, what I really want is to dwell with the Christ. Because he's not... A list of rules. He's not a code of conduct. He is a person. And to the extent that you know him and recognize that you are known by him, you will want him all the more. Third point. You are known. We say this all the time here, but Revelation 13 says, from before the foundations of the earth, I knew you. And your name was written in the Lamb's book of life in blood. I didn't look through the corridors of time into the future and see that you would find me. No, that's not biblical. I found you. And then you go and tell others, we found him. You are known. Long before God ever said, let there be light, he had already said, let there be life. And when you and I fully begin to associate and internalize that we are known, he knows what we are, what we think, what we're like, all of our maladies. And he loves us anyway. We're his favorite. It changes, it changes everything. 
A lot of people were encountering Jesus, expecting him to be a hero. He would just simply solve their problems, that he would just make Israel great again. It's not why he was there, and he's not why he's here, if I can just be so bold as to say that. He was God walking among them. He was compassionate, he was comforting, he was wise, and he was willing to suffer. It was not merely treating the symptoms of a fallen world. He was taking all of that venom, all of that malice, all of that guile, all of that evil into himself and removing it with the death of his own body. And he was willing to do that because of the glory of the Godhead and his deep love for you and for me, for any who are willing to receive his offer. We say this all the time, but I'll say it again. This Jesus really is a king who cares. He's a champion who's willing to die and he's a big brother who is proud. One of my favorite songs is by Andrew Peterson and it's called The Dark Before the Dawn. And in it he says, I, have a, I had a vision of how my life was going to end and there I finally see him. I finally see the one who has known me all this time. And he has this great refrain. He says, I will finally believe that the king has loved me all along. That line wrecks me every time because I think I know a lot about Jesus and I know that he, I know that he likes me and I know that he loves me and I know all that, but do I actually believe that he has always loved me from the, before the foundations of the earth? See, that'll change the world. That'll change my world because what the world needs is people who genuinely, authentically, legitimately, and sincerely and functionally believe that the king has loved them all along. And so I wonder, do you know him? My prayer for our campus congregation for this whole weekend has been that you would know that you are known and to cease striving and to simply receive that grace. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. Father, I pray if there's one here this morning who does not know you, who is not known by you, that they would lay down their defenses, lay down all of their resistance, and simply receive what you have come to offer, which is the removal of sin and darkness and death. And they would step out of that darkness into light, out of that death into life. And Father, for the rest of us, would you remind us of the glory of actually being known, that we are known by the famous one. And based on that, we have community with one another and we can share the stories of how we are known and loved anyway. And then go and do likewise, to love one another despite all the things that we know. So Father, would you continue to have your way with us this morning? Thank you for your word. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus, amen. Hey, thanks again so much for being here. I want to remind you, if you are part of our volunteer ministries lunch that starts uh, right now on the second floor, let me ask you to stand for a word of benediction and then we will be dismissed. This is going to come from the little epistle of Jude, half-brother of Jesus. His benediction goes like this. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to prevent you or present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God and Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. 
Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.